chilly today. <laughs> Good? It's raining outside. <laughs> and thanks for this weather and wonderful. Uh, we had lots of rains and I heard the announcement from the pilgrim place that we already over the, the, the total amount of rain that we had before in 2016, right? So that's awesome, that's blessing. Uh, so today, well, we have a great speaker, uh, Dr. Lin uh, Slezarev Jamir, and uh, she's a Hutchinson Professor of Urban Studies and Professor of Ethics and Politics and Society. Um, society. And Helen is uh, currently researching the character of religiously inspired justice work in response to globalization and the American empire. I like the words, American empire. <laughs> she is working on a book on contemporary progressive prophetic activism um, in the United States that will include chapters on congregational, community organizing activism and support of worker justice immigrant rights and peacemaking and ending global poverty. So her earlier work includes reports on national promising practices and community-based ministry among Asian and Hispanic immigrant religious communities. <clears throat> Published by um, NEKC Foundation, uh, she has also written articles on the congregational-based community organizing and the role of the public theology in the age of empire. She has an extensive background doing the community-based concerting work and worked as a union and community organizer in Washington, D.C. and Chicago prior to going to the graduate school. And she's currently a member of the board of directors of Sojourners and serves on the UMC's National Committee for Hispanic Latino Ministry and its National Immigration Task Force. So she <clears throat> she's going to talk about the prophetic activism in the era of Trump. <laughs> so this is basically uh, echoing the themes on her book on the prophetic activism. So, uh, thank you for being here with us and let's welcome her. I'm going to keep my coat on. Yes. Not that I'm planning to just rush out of here afterwards, but I notice when I try to take it off, it gets a little chilly in here. So, I think this is very brave. <laughs> you thought I was very brave. Huh? Well, um, Yes, Trump. Trump. We have we are faced with a, a very new and uh, unanticipated situation in our country. And um, during my teenage years, back in the mid to late 1960s, my parents were then already marching at that point in support of Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, and later on the war in Vietnam. And, Looking back, I now recognize that every generation is in some way faced with having to respond to acts of injustice. And uh, I think we find ourselves at that threshold once again. 
And so we need to think and discuss what our, what our next steps are going to be. What do we do? How do we respond to this new situation that we find ourselves in, the post-Obama period? So I have to, I think we have to acknowledge that Trump's misogynistic, anti-woman, anti-LGBTQI message resonated with a significant segment of the American population. Many of whom have indeed experienced the loss of good paying jobs with handsome benefits as manufacturing jobs departed from the US, moving to Mexico and to Asia. And I cannot help but think of the recent horror of Flint, Michigan's lead-contaminated water system, which I thought was one of the most egregious forms of injustice that have been perpetrated on a whole city. Families unwittingly drinking contaminated water while their elected officials covered up the severity of the contamination. We also have to acknowledge that this sort of gross malfeasance represents a deep callousness towards working class people's well-being. We also have to admit that many of the slick gadgets that we now use as forms of entertainment and communication are no longer manufactured in the US, but instead are being assembled by low-wage workers in overseas manufacturing platforms. I've seen these new high-tech manufacturing zones in Singapore, in Taiwan, and each one of us, including myself, because my cell phone is in my purse, each one of us who carries an iPhone in our pocket or our purse has contributed in a small way to the loss of manufacturing in the United States. While many of us have moved on, others have been stranded in the old reality of heavy manufacturing. During the 1980s, I watched this shift take place because I lived on the south side of Chicago for quite a few years. And in fact, at, for a period of time, I was married to a man who had a job in one of the steel mills. And we watched how those steel mills closed down. And we literally watched how the communities around the mills turned into ghost towns. One house after another going into foreclosure. You know, these were, these were uh, sort of wood frame homes, right? So they, they're not really homes that are gonna last that long unless you maintain them well. And you could just see when you drove through the neighborhoods how these communities were literally falling apart. So I, I watched this shift. I watched this shift in manufacturing when I lived on the south side of Chicago. And I saw what was happening to the people who had once had really, really good jobs. When uh, my son was born, while my husband was still working in one of these mills, and we literally got a bill from the insurance company for less than $100 for the birth of our child. I mean, that was the kind of insurance that people had in those days. You know, they could, they could know that whatever kind of medical needs they had, 
they would be able to afford it, easily afford it, because the insurance policies were so good. Pardon? So it's just a white community. <laughs> okay. Well, while many of us moved on, others were stranded in this old reality of heavy manufacturing. And as I said, during the 80s, I watched this in the south side of Chicago. So we have, to, we have to recognize that Donald Trump has successfully tapped into a certain rage over all of these losses, these cumulative losses. Not just of well-paying jobs, but a whole way of living. Yet Trump actually doesn't offer any real solutions either. Instead, his strategy is to demonize whole groups of people including immigrants, especially those who remain undocumented or barely documented, such as some of the dreamers are in that kind of category. They're, they're barely documented. But I think uh, with Trump's inauguration, they can very easily find themselves in, in deep, deep trouble. So um, for many of us, these last days and even the last weeks have, in fact, been a time of lament. I have felt that. I don't know how many of you have felt that, but I have certainly felt that this is a time of lament. And we have to acknowledge that many of us are, are deeply shocked and saddened by the results of the recent presidential election, not so much because of Hillary's loss, but more because we're now facing at least four years of the Trump presidency. Unless some form of legal or supernatural event takes place. Many of us, including the Clintons, well, I'm sorry, many of us clearly underestimated the animosity that many people had towards the Clintons, which the alt-right certainly used to their advantage. Some of us, including myself, remained largely unaware of what the alt-right actually was and what it was espousing. <sighs> I speak for myself when I say that many of us simply did not anticipate this outcome, despite having had our misgivings about Hillary. After living for eight years under the presidency of Barack Obama, the first person of color ever to be elected to the U.S. presidency, we somehow anticipated that Obama's charisma would make up for Hillary's wonkishness. We must now come to terms with the fact that many Americans had simply grown weary of the Clintons, while right-wing activists and pundits successfully painted both husband and wife as having somehow created or cheated by erecting a foundation in their name while accepting funds from foreign entities. And I still have no idea what the truth of any of the allegations are concerning the Clinton Foundation. This was, of course, furthered by the quote-unquote investigation launched by FBI Director James Comey, Comey, which announced on October 28th that he was reopening the investigation on, into Hillary's emails. Now, the fact that he did that 
so within days of the presidential election, clearly had an effect, had an impact on the outcome of that election. So we've really seen some, some very peculiar, if not nefarious, <coughs> actions taking place in and around this election period that we have just come through. Despite his shortcomings, Obama certainly represented a much more egalitarian vision of what this country could become. Yet unexpectedly, we now find ourselves on the edge of a very different reality. One that probably many in the larger community had not anticipated. Much speculation over the validity of the election will remain, but Trump has now been inaugurated. I suspect that many of us will continue to view Obama as our president, because it was Obama who enabled so many of us to envision a new, more egalitarian future for this country. Yet, we are now confronted with the dark side of the US's electoral system, since from the time of this country's founding, it was indeed designed to give greater weight to the elite, to the electors, making our system far less egalitarian than most Americans believe it to be. It is, in fact, the so-called electoral college that actually votes on the president, and those men and women are not your ordinary citizens. They are a political elite who are professional politicians, not ordinary citizens. By now, we have come to realize that Hillary Clinton actually did win the popular vote by over three million votes, but lost the electoral college's votes. So now the big question is, where do we go from here? Donald Trump has claimed that he has a new vision for America. He claims that all his decisions will benefit American workers, that a new era of economic protectionism will benefit American workers, but it is a bit difficult to actually believe that, that when one looks at the people who are being installed in his administration. So we are now at a moment where we need to rethink and we need to make some new commitments. What are we going to do as church? We have to seek ways in which we can protect those who have become the most vulnerable under these new circumstances. So I think we need to talk about what, what does that mean? What is that going to look like? We have some new tasks before us. We will have to more actively care for those who will be increasingly marginalized. Imagine what may happen quite soon to those who are dependent on the Affordable Care Act that Trump began to dismantle at the moment, a few moments after he had been inaugurated as president. We will have to find new ways of providing material aid we will need to be prepared to engage in civil disobedience, which most of us have not done in a long time. But we have to prepare ourselves. We have to locate safe spaces in churches, once again, may become sanctuaries if deportations once again come into the picture. 
We have to speak out against the powers and principalities. Not, not all of our church members will be in agreement. We have to acknowledge that there are members of our churches that support the current direction. We have a great deal of educational work that we'll have to do. We have to actively protect all of our rights and the rights of those who are the most vulnerable. We will have to pay more attention to the intersectionality of forms of oppression. We are about to be ruled by a plutocracy that does not acknowledge the traditional boundaries between state and civil society. We need to identify role models, such as the young adults who've been working for justice along the US-Mexico border, many of whom are actually still undocumented, yet they have been willing to publicly come out and speak their mind and do advocacy work. And ultimately, we need to affirm our own spiritual needs, develop new forms of meditation and solidarity. Mm. So that is really my opening comments. I want to open this up. I'd, lo I'd love to hear what others of you think, whether any of this resonates with you, if you have other ideas of things that we ought to be thinking about, I think we have to get into the mode, into a action mode. So what, what are we, what are we going, what are our next steps? Yes. Uh, I went to the Women's March in ah, LA yesterday. Fantastic. And I came back totally energized. Wonderful. We, we could not get close. I didn't hear any speakers <laughs> because we were stuck on a side street. Could not get any Can you speak up, please? Yeah. <laughs> I went to the Women's March yesterday. We could not get close to hearing any of the speakers because all of the side streets were packed. It was packed from 6th Street to City Hall, both on Broadway Hill and Pershing Square. Uh, the Metrolink stopped picking up passengers in Claremont, and all we were standing remotely on Metrolink all the way in. It was extremely positive. There were no arrests. There's estimates of anywhere between 500 and 700,000 people were in LA yesterday, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was it was it was glorious. Everybody was positive but determined. There was really an energy that you know this is just the beginning. This was not just a one-day thing. Yeah. What I heard you just say, which is fine, that with the coming administration, we have to be prepared to help people. Yes. But I didn't hear you say anything about what you thought should be done about uh, addressing the genuine concerns of the people that elected Trump. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've read Robert Putnam's book, Our Kids. No, I haven't. You should. Mm -hmm. Because what it does, it talks about the new segregation. He doesn't call it that. But it's a new segregation between the rich and the poor. Mm -hmm. And you look at Claremont. Where do the rich live? North. Where do the poor live? South. Mm -hmm. What about our schools? We don't have daycare centers that are free. So the poor, can, uh, the poor can't afford them. 
We don't have certainly, uh, we don't have childcare centers in the sense that uh, families that have two working adults uh, have to park their kids with grandma. Yep. Um, it's been shown in New Jersey that if three and four year olds go to uh, uh, preschool uh, with um, uh, certified uh, degree holding teachers, that there's within five years, New Jersey had a 50% increase in preparedness for public schools. Um, before the time they interact that program. Sure. Uh, things like pay for play in the high school, where if you want to be in an extracurricular activity, you have to pay. Poor children can't participate right. in that. And so the question really comes to me is that, what you, I mean, helping people are fun, but if you're not going to correct the ills, you're going to be right back where you are four years from now. Sure, I, I completely agree with you. Yes, yes, yes. I think the big question, as far as the church is concerned, is will the church step up to take leadership in these issues? And, you know, I was a social worker on the west side of Chicago mm. in the 60s. And I marched in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And I marched with a lot of, I marched with a lot of people who had been good church members but because the church wasn't taking a leadership role, they left the church. But they still wanted the church, you know, to support these <coughs> movements. Right, right. The nuclear, the nuclear issue, you know, uh, the civil rights issue. Right. But the church did not take the leadership, you know, and so people left. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that's one of the big things is. How is the church going to step up so and say, what, what do you think? How, what does the church need to do to step up under these circumstances? What does that look like? Well, I think it looks like a lot of the things this gentleman was talking about. Yeah. I think our church has stepped up um, way before this in regards to there was a march where we were supposed to march with the Muslim community churches and the Jewish community church. Um, if I remember right, that was a very hot day, and we did not have a very good turnout. Um, I can't remember all the impetus around that march. I don't know if you guys remember more, but uh, and Pastor Karen's not here. But um, you know, so we have a community, of, an interfaith community for our church fellowship in Claremont. Mm -hmm. That I, um, I think we could probably enliven more than we have. We kind of waned in our mm. participation in several things, which we have been, especially with the Jewish community, and I think we've tried to do more. I, When I was in the youth group, we did more with the Muslim, um, I'm sorry, I'm not calling them the right thing, but our youth group did a couple mixers with their youth group when, we, when I was a pig's advisor, and we talked about the different faiths, and so there's opportunity within our community to demonstrate this. Maybe we just need to reinvigorate ourselves in that. Right, right, right. But it, it might also need to have somewhat of a shift in focus because, it's, because a lot of the interfaith work that I've also been a part of has been sort of getting to know each other's faith traditions and you know, exchanging meals and, you know, and, and developing personal relationships. Well, and the Kushners yeah. had hosted uh, that very thing in their house, um, mm -hmm. when was that, just a year ago, where the temple 
talked and they openly said why they were upset with things that we were doing in regards to divestiture in Israel and the Presbyterian denomination um, stance on certain things. Mm -hmm. And they openly shared why that, why some of them openly shared why that bothered them. And we had a great sitting next to each other, a great conversation about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe that needs to shift to activism. Yeah. Rather than just getting to know each other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think I think that our faith traditions will find common ground in in some of the concerns that people here are expressing and the fears that that many of us now have as to what is going to happen next. You know, I I I am particularly concerned, as you may have heard about what will happen to uh, you know, the less, let's say, the less documented immigrants, especially young adults who, are, who have been here you know, under a certain level of protection that the Obama administration granted these young people and had, has enabled them to come out of the shadows, actually enroll in, enroll in school. You know, but now what, what will happen to them now that they have actually, in some ways, exposed themselves, yeah. right? So, so what do, we're, we're going to have to rethink some of the ways in which we care for the vulnerable in these next years to come. Yes? Um, I, I grew up in the south side of Chicago. Oh, um, where? Uh, uh, in a little community called Beverly. I know that community. Yeah. Um, I was a little bit. <laughs> Um, I want to tag on to, to your last sentence. Claremont's an ideal community to take the leadership with the Dreamers and other semi, semi-documented. They're extremely vulnerable. They, 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 but support for the Dreamers before Trump mm-hmm. was almost universal. Mm-hmm. There were three or four bills that made it through Congress, uh, <coughs> through the House, and not through the Senate, you know, because of various reasons. Uh, there's no political reason that we can't protect the dreamers. Uh, Will Perez, teaches at CGU, has been the chronicler of the dreamers. Mm. Uh, so we have we have resources here and there within six blocks of where we're sitting. Mm-hmm. So if we wanted to pick out a concrete, actionable thing that we could do, uh, we could put ourselves down in, uh, uh, in, in favor of trying to do something for the dreamers. In a larger sense, California is trying to construct a county area. Yes, absolutely. And it seems to me that you know, the legislature, the mm-hmm. governor, uh, uh, and California's public officials, including, including the new attorney general, uh, uh, will you know, will consciously try to develop a different vision of what America yes. might be like. I think that's uh, true. Yeah. And, the, and the question for me is, how do we Christianize this? <laughs> and, and, and I'm not trying to get you know the the, the you know the, the funny card ahead of Jesus here, but I guess I am no bigger. But um, do we want to Christianize it, or do we want to make it multi-faith? Well, the question is that there are lots of other folks who say what we believe is not Christian. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
uh, I, I spent part of last week uh, with a researcher who, who does research on Twitter networks. Hmm. Uh, and one of our little side conversations came, I printed out this a, a, a screenshot this morning, is from something called the Patriot Journalists Network. There are thousands of people who are retweeting millions of tweets uh, uh, as a team of conservatives working together to support conservative causes with the use of Twitter and linking that with the, linking that with the Christian church. Wow. And so if you go to the, to the hashtag, I'm not going to church this morning, the first tweet says, I'm not going to church this morning because the church is an arm of oppressiveness uh, 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 in the world and I won't come close to it. And, and until we have an answer to that that says this is what the church is, that is not what the church is, we will lose two generations. Well, I think we've already lost one. Yeah. What, what makes you say that, that we've already lost one? Because if you talk to people about what I, I've had arguments with people who, I've had arguments with people that say that um, the Christian church is a pre, opposed to civil rights they're opposed to equality they're opposed to LGBT mm. rights they're opposed to women's rights mm. and that is the the I, I don't know if it's a majority view but it's a very popular view of what Christians are. That's the view that's out there in the media and that's the view that gets the gets the press. Is that and you know I said, well, you know, Martin Luther King and civil rights and then well that's that's a long time ago. No. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th I think we the, the inability, the inability of we haven't been many, out front for a long time. Mm -hmm. The inability of many churches and many Christians to embrace, you know, gays and lesbians, and really it affirm us badly. It, it, it has been very damaging. I, I, I have watched that. I definitely think that that's true. And I, yeah, I like him for Peter, who denied Jesus. <laughs> You know, because of fear. Mm -hmm. You know, what is this going to cost me? Uh, what's going to happen to me? And I think the church has felt that way for a long time. I mean, we can speak the, the, the right words and all, but unless you put yourself on the line that's true. and stand up and be brave enough to do it, that's the important. But I also, I mean, I, I uh, attend a, a small United Methodist Church in Riverside. And uh, we have been, for a year and a half, in a conversation about starting a conversation <laughs> about LGBTQ issues. Within the congregation. That, I don't know if that's who you converse with, because as I understand it, 80% of evangelicals voted for Trump. That is our concern. The, the Islamic community, the Jewish community, they're our friends. I really think... Yeah, I, I, I don't know, I don't know what we're going to do with the evangelicals. We have two point. churches, and that's, therefore we can't call ourselves the Christian church okay. in this society. I don't think we can. We have several evangelical relatives, and a couple of them did these long paragraphs in Facebook saying, you know, they're Christians, they're sick and tired of all these other people telling them what to believe, they believe what the Bible tells them, and obviously 
being Republican and being evangelical equal one another, and being Democrat equals not being Christian because it means not being evangelical. And I agree with Steve that it was the evangelical. Look, Billy Graham's son. Yeah. What is the message? And and the, you know, interviewing the people afterwards. It was such a godly inaugural. Why was it godly? I don't know because it was connected that those two equal one another. Even though it's hard for me to see Trump and godliness. Absolutely. <laughs> in the same sense. But, but those are, having grown up, Steve and I both grew up in those communities, uh-huh. that equals being Christian. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Is Christianity a religion of exclusion? And when I say that, is that, you know, there's many flavors of Christianity that believe that if you don't believe in Christ, you don't believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible, you know, you're not one of us and you're the outside. So I would argue that many flavors of Christianity are religions of exclusion. And what they do is they, the, those who are included, uh, you know, are often uh, people who feel um, put upon in the sense that they're the ones who have um, been affected by the economic change and not been able, been able to adapt to it. And so the church provides this uh, refuge for them psychologically, if nothing else, uh, and it, it protects them and gives them some sort of feeling of security in a world that's changing and they don't know how to fix it. And uh, so I think that, uh, you know, as long as um, you know, you, you can't you can't you can't have a conversation with people that are different. You know, this is becoming a problem. Is that because um, you you're know, you're too far apart from each well, other and unwilling to listen to each other? You know, there's there's absolute truth, uh-huh. and uh, I have it. Uh-huh. And if you don't, there's no discussion. Uh-huh. Yes. And yes. the other, the other, let me just one point and I'll shut up. Um, <laughs> this business of the east, you know, the right to left coast in the Midwest. I mean, people, people who live on the coast get a very different view of the world than people who live in, in the Midwest. And in the, out, out in the, not, maybe not in Chicago, some of the big cities like Chicago or St. Louis, but, um, you know, you get up in, no, the, you get up in northern Michigan. You're absolutely right. In places like this. And these, this is a, a, a very different culture. Yes. Well, this is a huge country, so inevitably there are going to be these different sort of regional you know, uh, ways of understanding who we are that does not encompass all of who we are, ever. Yeah. You look like you were... Oh, I was wondering who here is active in the Progressive Christian Uniting uh, organization? Well, you know that unfortunately it's sort of shut down. Did you know really? that? Yes, they, they're, 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 there's some still volunteer efforts taking place, mm-hmm. but PCU has run out of funding. Well, the, I was just thinking, you were saying that there's a negative attitude toward Christianity, but that is because it's a negative attitude in, um, toward fundamentalist Christianity, which many people say that's Christianity, 
And I think most of the people here would say that is not Christianity, mm -hmm. in my opinion. And uh, the Progressive Push Uniting was out to say we need to unite and get progressive right. people like those at this church to stand up and fight for, you know, Christianity as they understand it. Yeah. And, um, so I, I think it's wrong to say that, uh, you know, we should kind of avoid Christianity uh, because it has a bad name and people won't come to us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, un it's unfortunate that PCU has ran out of funding and has had to close down. So uh, that's one of, you know, th those, are, those are, I think, the kind of laments that we face at the moment. That even at this moment, you know, we haven't been able to maintain support for an organization like PCU. Yeah, way in the back. I think you have to be careful about saying that there's a negative view of Christianity because of the evangelicals. There are a tremendous number of people who see that as a very positive view, and that's why their churches are growing exponentially. You know, you, you can say this is not the way that I interpret the Bible, mm -hmm. you know, and that this is how I choose to live a path based on what I, I believe that Jesus intended or that God intended. But we are going, we will be fools if we think that there's a negative view of Christianity based on evangelicals. They will wipe us out because right now they have a message that is extremely appealing to a number of a, a huge number of people. I mean, we may feel negative mm -hmm. about that, but the, the, and you, you know, I have this different perspective because within my own family and within my own experience, there are people who've had different views of mm -hmm. religion, and, and I had the pleasure of, of meeting Ray Jennings, who came out of prison, and he was sustained in his time in prison by evangelical messages, by evangelical Bible studies, by the way evangelicals were willing to reach out to him. We, we don't offer the same solace mm -hmm. in this very difficult world. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I think there's a spiritual awakening in the evangelical movement, which we're trying to get in our own churches. But I think that's what appeals to a lot of people in the evangelical yeah. movement, is that spiritual awakening. Well, and it, I, and it I, speaks to them. They, they may not get the intellectual... Uh, but I think there's also a, a whole sort of lifestyle within within, within evangelicalism yeah. of caring for children of raising children of uh, sort of nurturing there, you know there are a lot of positive aspects yeah. to but they're also very you know very uh, rigid yes um, they're, they're very they're very inward and, they're and very inward looking and all those right they're very inward looking and and they have sort of boundaries of you know, what, what is okay, what is not okay, you know. Yes? I don't know that you can say they're inward looking when they're washing door to door, trying to get us to join their faith. 
And, and you just said the divorce rate is higher in evangelical communities? The, yeah. The, uh, this, uh, the idea that, um, that it's about families is right up to a point. Uh, but if you step over, I mean, one of the things that's, that, that is the case is that, it, that there are real boundaries, as you just said. <coughs> You step over the boundaries, you're out. Yes, that's right. Uh, uh, that's right. Uh, my brother was tossed out of his church Ooh. Uh, uh, you know, because he, men he mentioned the D word. He didn't actually D. He just thought about it. You know. <laughs> uh, but it's you know it is a you know, it is a, a fairly intolerant, but therefore fairly easily communicable. Uh, uh, I think we are far far. Too easy to stereotype. Mm -hmm. Yes. People that we call evangelicals. Um, there are evangelicals on the left. Uh, Jim Wallace and the Sojourners. Uh, there are evangelicals that have been driven out of the church and are looking for places to go. Yeah, there are. Uh, so as long as, and partly this has to do with Presbyterian politics, as long as our heads are stuck in this line that has to do with those are the bad people and they want to believe that we fought all these battles in, uh, in, in, uh, within the Presbyterian Church USA. We're not going to be able to get our heads around um, what it is to reach out to people. Uh, one of the things that's really true is that as a congregation, we're not very good uh, at reaching out to, uh, at reaching out to uh, uh, to people who aren't here. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we have lost that core skill. That's a core skill that almost all evangelicals have. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think mainline Protestants have a difficult time figuring that element out these days. How do we expand beyond sort of those people who have been in our congregations for many years? I, I see that in my Methodist church as well. It's a very, it's a very cozy and, and a very sincere congregation, but yet it doesn't really see, it doesn't really even envision itself, I think, as, as a congregation that's going to do broader work and invite people to come who are not there. I'm afraid that uh, it's about time. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> uh, but we, we can continue uh, the conversation sure. after that. Um, so before we adjourn, uh, I want to invite Gail uh, to make an announcement. Well, I just wanted to quickly call attention, those of you who take the, the Presbyterian magazine, then there's an article about after-school tutoring programs, especially in New Jersey, and Bill and Pat Reed were all in instrumental in starting and working on one of the programs that is featured in the magazine. So it was fun to be reading along in here and run into somebody that I knew. So in next week, the same time, we're going to have the interfaith uh, work with the rabbi Jonathan. I'm sorry, but yes. Kupes, thank you. It's very hard to pronounce it. <laughs> so uh, I'll see you on next week. And uh, before we adjourn, uh, I want to 
express our gratitude to uh, Dr. Allen. Thank you very much. Thank you.